0: Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.
1: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 211, The End of the Battle of Shanghai. Last time, General Matsui, commander of the Japanese Expeditionary Force, had driven the Chinese defenders south to Suzhou Creek on November 3rd. Indeed, the creek's south bank had been breached that very afternoon. Now, Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist army was out of natural barriers to their south. Hence, the Japanese would be able to drive a bit further and then enter Shanghai proper from the west. The battle for Shanghai, it seemed, was over. And yet... As the Japanese seemed poised to enter Shanghai, they had lost many men to get to this point. What's more, Chang still had numerous divisions in the area. This was unacceptable to the army general staff back in Tokyo, who feared a Soviet attack before the year's end in Manchuria. Something had to give. One of these theaters had to be brought under control. And the military leaders back in the capital decided it would be Shanghai. The area was to be subdued, the Chinese armies destroyed. Only then could Manchukuo to the north be sent enough troops to hold out against the Russians. On October 9th, the army general staff to assist Matsui created the 10th Army. This would consist of the forces of the 6th Infantry Division, currently stationed to the north, the 5th Infantry Division, a.k.a. the Kunuzaki Detachment, and from the home islands, the 18th and 114th Infantry Divisions. As for the 10th's leadership, General Hanagawa Hisuki, a veteran of the Russo-Japanese War, would be brought out of retirement and placed in command. The choosing of Yanagawa was mostly based on his time as a military attaché in Beijing. After all, Sun Tzu said, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. However, there was another saying by this man the Japanese should have adhered to, and that is, there is no instance of a nation benefiting from prolonged warfare. However, the men of Tokyo honestly believed themselves so superior to Chang's thousands that if they could just bring them to battle... It would all be over shortly. And this idea of bringing the enemy to battle dovetailed with where to deploy the approaching elements of the 10th Army. This fighting through the enemy lines wasted too much time and cost too many lives. So, it was decided to land them behind the enemy and in such a way as to cut off those Chinese troops still defending Shanghai proper. And a landing on the north shore of the Hangzhou Bay, itself some 35 kilometers or 21 miles south of Shanghai, would fulfill both requirements. Still, this posed several logistical problems. The beaches there had a fast-running tide and a flat shore, hence no fixed coastline. Besides, it was heavily fortified, had been so since 1932. And, of course, there were many, many small waterways the further inland one goes from there. But because it would be so unexpected, the Japanese planners decided this negated all the negatives. As this had been planned by mid-October, the landings were expected to take place on November 5th. The 5th Infantry Army, again, a.k.a. the Kunizaki Detachment, would lead the main attack by landing just east of Jinshawei, which put it due south of the western edge of Shanghai proper. They would come ashore just before sunrise on the 5th, with the 18th Division landing to its right and the 114th Division to its left. The 6th Division would then land behind the Kunizaki detachment. Once the 10th Army landed, they were to push north, cross the Huangpu River, and make for the city of Songjiang. As it was the rail center of the area and had many roads leading out of it, its occupation would not only help the invaders, but hamper the defenders. Then the 10th would meet up with Matsui's men coming south, and just like that, the defenders of Shanghai would be surrounded and cut off from help. The men of the 10th Army were on the seas by November 1st. Some 200 ships in total were carrying them ever closer to Huangzhou Bay. To avoid detection, the ships stayed far away from shore, not turning west until they were level with their disembarkation point. That morning of November 5th, the men of the Kunizaki Detachment were ordered into their landing boats. They were fearful, but as they had been ordered to remain silent, they did not give themselves away. As the boats closed in on shore, the men within them waited to be fired upon. But no shots came. When the boats were closer, their bottoms struck ground. Though still far from the shore, the men jumped out and made for land. A few salvos came their way. One man was hit in the thigh. But the men of the detachment figured out that 1. the defenders were guessing where they were, and 2. there weren't as many Chinese ahead of them as predicted. The Japanese came ashore, covered in mud from having dropped to the ground, their training taking over, when the first shell landed. The Chinese were above them on the dunes, but ran away as soon as the first group came ashore looking like demons, with the mud covering their faces. The men of the Kunizaki detachment reformed and started walking north. First, they came upon isolated houses, and then small villages. Some of those had defenders inside, ready to shoot the Japanese in the back once they passed. So the invaders started burning the houses they came upon. A few times, their machine gun had to be set up and fired to chase away the Chinese, hiding in a stone building. But most times, the defenders fled, scared by the larger body of men coming their way. Hello, Ray here. Does your business have any New Year's resolutions? Here's an important one every business should consider. Making your hiring process more efficient and effective. This year, let ZipRecruiter help. No one has done a better job of transforming how you find the right talent than they have. In short, you just need the right tools. Smarter tools. After all, Steve Jobs himself said, Hiring the best is your most important task. And here's why ZipRecruiter is the best. ZipRecruiter posts your jobs to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WorldWar. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WorldWar. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. Then came a counterattack on the Japanese left flank. But as it was not heavily manned and the troops did not attack with enthusiasm, the assault amounted to little. The same sluggish attack then occurred on the Japanese right flank. The men of the Kunitsaki detachment each carried one week's worth of rice and all the bullets they could handle. This attack, like the others to the north, was not going to be slowed down by a lack of supplies. The good news for the Japanese was that, now that they had moved inshore, the large naval guns behind them offered protection. The Japanese amphibious assault was exceeding all expectations, but once the sun rose and burned off the morning mist, the invaders would be visible. The 10th Army was about to find out how robust the area's defenses. Were? The answer came quickly enough. Not much. A few Chinese aircraft flew over the heads of the invaders, but the pilots were on a training exercise and so had no live ammunition. Once again, the German advisors with Chiang Kai shek denounced the local leadership. How had the Japanese been able to sail up the coast with a 200 plus convoy undetected? Why were those same invaders not being held up, and more hopefully, pushed back? The Germans concluded, not that this helped anyone, that the Chinese to the south had become a sleeping army. Of course, everyone on the defender side knew what the problem was. For the last two months, in attempt after attempt to stop the Japanese above Shanghai, More and more troops had been taken from this very spot to reinforce the attacks against Masui and his men. As for the Japanese, they didn't know exactly where the reinforcements were coming from, but it could not have worked out better for them. Even before noon of November 5th, the first day of the Japanese southern amphibious assault, some 3,000 troops had been landed, and even more were coming ashore. To be sure, the Chinese officers of the Third War Zone stationed around Suzhou had no way of knowing was this simply a feint or was it something more. But to the Germans, it didn't matter. The threat to the south had to be checked, because even if it was only a feint, if left unchecked, it could become something more. But the Chinese officials decided that morning it was better to wait. After all, why react or overreact if it was only a ploy? But the Germans countered. The scale didn't matter. Those troops had to be pushed back into the sea. Yet the Chinese were uncommittal. That's when one of the Germans, Albert Nyerger, stepped forward and offered to lead the counterattack himself. Having walked around Songjiang before the Japanese came, he knew the area well and that it had to be secured, or else the Chinese would be left with only one option, retreat. But even then, a retreat needed to be organized. It needed to have the area to its north and south held, so the withdrawal could take place. Hence, it made sense either way, no matter what the third war zone commanders wanted to do to launch an attack. But the German was met, again, with vagueness. Not a no, but not a yes, either. Besides, the Chinese countered, they did not think the men to the south were up to the job, to which the German could have easily asked, well, if we're not even going to try, then what are we all doing here? As the southern defensive position was crumbling, the Japanese to the north were still crossing the Suzhou Creek in large numbers. What made their crossing possible was their engineering comrades. These unlucky young men, wearing only helmets and loincloths, waded into the cold water to hold up the planks of wood, which the infantry would step on. The engineers were protected by the early morning darkness. However, the infantry drew fire as soon as they started to cross. Suddenly, the cold water swirling around the mostly naked men didn't seem so bad. As more of the Japanese crossed, the less accurate it was to say that the Battle of Suzhou Creek was in doubt. The Chinese were being pushed back. There was little to nothing for them to the south to hide behind anymore. And now there was a new threat to their south. The only question was, how big was that threat, and would the defenders be able to get out of the way of the two encroaching fronts? The Japanese to the south were starting to meet resistance, but not of the man-made kind. The defenders had retreated, but now what slowed down the aggressors was the numerous creeks and rivers. When the Kunitsaki detachment first came ashore, their heavier equipment sank into the mud and could not be dislodged. But having their orders that time was a necessity, the men went on with their sidearms and machine guns, their officers with their personal guns, but astride horses. As they continued on, what few locally made crossways existed scared the horses with their flimsiness, so soon even most of them had to be abandoned. The military might that made the Japanese army dangerous was left further and further behind as the men advanced north. Still, by the evening of November 5th, the same day they came ashore, the advance units were now inland by some three miles, or 4.8 kilometers. In fact, the leading 100 men had reached and crossed the Huangpu River readying the attack on the town of Songjiang. At this point, the center column was three-fourths of their way to the target town. The right flank was close behind these men, though the left was a bit further behind, having run into the first organized resistance. The Chinese troops there would not stay long, but were slowing down the enemy. By this time, the Chinese defenders had figured out that their enemy was traveling light and moving fast. Hence, they were living off the land. And there was only one answer to that. The Chinese, as they retreated, burned everything, killed all the animals, and poisoned all the wells. The locals would suffer as well, but the lives of the Japanese troops just became that much harder. The three Japanese columns spent November 6th continuing their way north. By the morning of November 7th, the Japanese came across fewer waterways, and hence were able to travel faster, though still on foot. General Tani Hisao, the commander of the Kunitsaki Detachment, one of the few officers who still had his horse, soon came upon a hill, just before the town of Jinshan, itself along the left column's path, just before the Huangpu River. Reaching the height, he was able to make out the contest for the town below. The Japanese vanguard had entered on the eastern end of the town and were pushing west. The Chinese were retreating west, staying about 300 yards ahead of their attackers and setting aflame everything they could. By the time the sun set, the Japanese held Jinshan, or what was left of it. The Cunninghzacchi men were able to find one intact building and began to settle down for the night, but soon someone yelled fire and the weary men evacuated. Their only hope for a peaceful rest that night was to find a second building, untouched by fire. The normal Chinese snipers may not have been about, but enough saboteurs remained behind to cause the enemy every headache they could. Up until now, there was only the Chinese 63rd Division, which had been trying to stop the attack from the south. They had been working with the 62nd Division, yet that had recently been sent to Pudong, on the eastern side of the foreign settlement. But now that the Chinese command knew that the threat to the south was serious, the 62nd was called back to assist. Of course, by the time those men rushed back, they would be exhausted and hardly in shape to launch a counterattack. Besides the sixty second, six other divisions from further away were being ordered to come and check the invasion from the south. But, truth be told, of those divisions, most were vastly under strength, suffered from low morale, and were slowed by the same waterways that had affected General Matsui’s attacks North of Shanghai. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. By now, it was clear to Chiang Kai-shek's generals that it was too late to push the Kunigzaki detachment back into the Huangzhou Bay. As such, the Huangpu River was their last chance to make a stand, even if that meant just calming the situation so a retreat could be organized. But then came a list of reasons why the Huangpu Line would not work. As the defenders did not think there would ever be fighting in this area, no fortifications had been prepared. Next, and more importantly, the majority of the civilians in the area had left their boats tied to the south bank before they fled, giving the Japanese the very vessels they needed to cross in large numbers. And lastly, the generals also carried on with the practice of throwing in newly arrived troops, to stymie the advance. These youths were tired from the marches and did not know the local land or the overall situation. So when the 107th and 108th divisions arrived from central China, they were told on November 8th to hold Songjiang at least until the 11th, for that's when those seven divisions should arrive. The two divisions marched south, as ordered, and entered the town. They fought tenaciously, but were out and outgunned. By the end of the next day, November 9th, the men of the 107th and 108th were in full retreat. Song Jiang was all but surrounded by enemy forces. By November 9th, the majority of Chang's men, officers, and soldiers alike considered the Battle of Shanghai lost. Men within Shanghai proper started collecting weapons and making their way west. There was a chance they would be shot for desertion, as Chang was growing more angry by the apparent loss of his city. But the Japanese would shoot them for sure. Besides, perhaps any artillery saved could one day lead the charge in recapturing this most cosmopolitan of Chinese cities. For the last week... Chen Kai-shek had been on the phone to Gu Zhutong several times a day, getting an update of the war to the south. Zhutong listed the enemy's bombers and naval shells landing around his headquarters as an excuse of not getting information or orders out to his men. Then Chen Chong said out loud what everyone else had been afraid to. It was time to cease resisting at Suzhou Creek. As for the fighting in the south, Chang blamed General Zhang Fakui, as it had been his responsibility, never mind his paucity of resources, to defend further south. More and more, Chang gave voice to his desire of having his senior officers shot by firing squads. The officers and soldiers weren't the only ones feeling helpless and angry about feeling helpless. Late into the night of November 8th, Chang issued an order to the head of the Shanghai Police Department, Kai Jianzheng. The police had become de facto soldiers in the last few months. Jianzheng and his men were to stay in the southern part of the city and fight so the regular troops could evacuate. The order was passed through Zhang Fakui, who was relieved that he and his men would be leaving. But Jian Zheng said no, he would not lose his life for a city that was already lost. Chang ordered Fakui to shoot Jia Zhang, but Fakui did not, knowing his superior's nerves were strained. In the end, the police fought while the army retreated. Jia Zhang survived the fall of Shanghai. The retreat of the Chinese defenders stationed in Shanghai started, orderly enough, at 10 a.m. on November 9th. These men were followed by thousands of civilian refugees. Ignoring them, the soldiers set fire to everything they considered useful to the enemy, the new masters of Shanghai. But that order soon broke down. When the close-by Japanese took the Jiao airfield, they immediately sent up fighters to strafe the fleeing enemy columns. Bridges and telegraph wires were also destroyed. As communication was now impossible, panic started to set in. The civilians picked up on this, and soon everyone was running. But as it was all now chaos, the efficiency of the retreat was retarded. As for the hundreds of thousands of Chinese troops in between the two Japanese fronts, panic also wove its way through them. For they all knew what would happen to them if caught by the Japanese, and here, rank held no privileges. So officers were scrambling just as much as their men. Before the breakdown in discipline, everyone had been told to make for Jingpu. jing practically due east of the center of Shanghai, by 30 kilometers, or 18.6 miles. There, Chiang Kai-shek had decided to make his next stand, which meant to him this was not a defeat, but a tactical retreat. This statement did not impress his men or the watching world as much as he would have liked. As the army left Shanghai, the people were told to carry on the fight, And some listened. However, most, who were surprised by the relatively sudden defeat and retreat of their army, packed up what they could and went to the French concession. On their knees, they begged to be allowed in, screaming of the horrid things the Japanese would do to them. But this was not France's fight. The foreigners had their Chinese servants beat the beggars with bamboo sticks until they left. Shanghai now belonged to the Japanese, but it had been a hard, bloody struggle, and the Japanese troops would not forget this. The civilians who remained were in constant mortal danger, but then came some good news. Father Robert Jacquinot, a French Jesuit who had been trying to arrange a safe zone for civilians, finally heard back from the local Japanese commander, who had himself heard back from Tokyo. So at 5 p.m. on November 9th, the Jacono Zone was established on the northern edge of Shanghai. It was soon filled with over 100,000 refugees who would know relative peace until 1940. For those outside the zone, their daily lives were about to become hell. To be sure, there were still some Chinese troops within Shanghai in Nansheng, just above the foreign settlement, in the southernmost Chinese part of the city. They had not had enough time to flee. After three days of intense fighting, the remaining defenders, between five and 6,000 men, sought to make the Japanese takeover of Shanghai as costly as possible. The Japanese were about to make their defense equally gruesome. On November 11th, the Japanese opened up on these men with their artillery as their tanks edged closer and their infantry moved up, though always keeping something between themselves and the Chinese snipers. The Chinese troops would backpedal purposefully across rivers and their pursuers would follow after building pontoon bridges for their tanks to cross. Some of the Chinese ran for the French concession and were allowed in if they survived the hail of bullets that followed them. When the Japanese tanks came to within 60 yards of the enemy, they opened fire. The Chinese had no serious cover. Before the bloodbath could become complete, the remaining Chinese piled up their weapons and ran for the French area. The French commander let them in, but told them they were now internees. The Japanese were all powerful in Shanghai now, and it would do no good for anyone to arouse their anger. At three thirty four p.m. November the 11th, the gunshots faded away. The rising sun flag was raised over the last Chinese holdout in Nanxi. Shanghai had fallen. Epilogue Those that made it out of Shanghai and the Japanese pincer, went to Nanjing. But now that lawlessness prevailed, just outside the city, armed groups of Chinese dominated the area. Whereas inside the city itself, mafia-style gangs organized and took what they wanted from the local populace and the occupying force. By early 1939, less than two years after their victory, The Japanese would find themselves building fortifications at Wusong to have some safe place to rest their heads. By mid-November, the Chinese had lost some 187,000 men. The number probably crosses over 200,000 when civilians are added. The Japanese lost just over 9,000 dead and 31,000 injured. But the most important factor for Chiang Kai-shek was that most of the dead had been his best German-trained troops. It would be many years, almost near the end of World War II, with massive American aid, before the Nationalists would recover from this defeat. As for the League of Nations, the meeting in Brussels did nothing for the Chinese. Chang's only foreign victory was that now Stalin would provide him with arms. The downside of this was that the Japanese would go on to focus on China for the foreseeable future. As for Chiang Kai-shek's German advisors, he would listen to them less and less, but that had more to do with Chinese culture than the quality of their advice. They would all return home by the end of 1938. The Japanese pursued the retreating Chinese columns, Indeed, it was prudent that they do so. But it seems that General Matsui, on his own initiative, decided to march on to Nanjing. In fact, he had told a German reporter that this was his intent back in late October. For Matsui knew his superiors back in Tokyo liked officers who took the lead and didn't always ask permission, thus putting them in an awkward position. On november thirteenth there was another amphibious landing just north of Shanghai, and perhaps feeling that he never had enough troops during the battle, Matsui, along with the other local commanders, decided on november fifteenth to take Nanjing, Cheng's capital. The Japanese columns set out, chasing their Chinese counterparts. However, the former killed many civilians as they came on at the end of each day. For some, it was entertainment. For others, it was for revenge, for the harsh battle that had been Shanghai. In December, the Japanese army would reach Nanjing, and as the soldiers had murdered and raped their way there, some seemed excited to be able to do it all over again. But this time, On a massive scale. Greetings everyone. Happy New Year. I just want to let you know that um, we're going to be doing the drawing for the World War II Monopoly board game that I got from um, uh, the World War II Museum in New Orleans. So when you get a chance, if you want to enter, just send me an email to www.iipodcast.gmail.com and just put Monopoly in the subject line, and I will answer you in the drawing. So good luck with that, everybody, and I will see you soon. Take care. Oh, P.S. Sorry about that. I just wanted to say hi to Julia. You have a very nice mother.